Okay, we are on chapter 13 and verse 16. In, in this part of the book of Hebrews, we have the sacrifices, the idea of the sacrifices. We talked about this last week, but in case you weren't here last week, the idea is that they were being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant practices, and under the Old Covenant they had sacrifices, and that was something that seemed attractive to them. And of course, as we studied in much earlier in Hebrews, there's no sacrifices per se under the New Covenant because Christ paid it for it all, once for all, with His one sacrifice. But here is a sacrifice that's still available for Christians, and that's the sacrifice of praise. It says then in Hebrews 13:15, through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips to give thanks to His name. So we discussed that last week and we pointed out that the phrase give thanks to His name in the Greek means to confess the name. So it's a very strong uh, confession of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on uh, in verse 16, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So here we have um, three different aspects of the, of the sacrifice that we have to bring as Christians. We come and, and confess the name, the sacrifice of praise, as we uh, glorify Him. We have doing good, and um, that, in the, from the Greek, that means tangible acts of concern for others, and then sharing, and it has a word that has a connotation of fellowship, but it's sharing life together in a community of believers that we are uh, we have so much in common because of what Christ has done for us and through us, and we have a common life together in Christ, and so we are sharing together as a uh, community. And then it says, for such sacrifices God is pleased. So we do have sacrifices to bring even under the new covenant. And that is praise, doing good, and sharing as Christians a life together with one another. Now, I was going to add a couple of citations here. 552. Um, it says here, William Lane says, the double admonition to praise God, verse 15, and to engage in acts of kindness and generosity verse 16, reflects the pattern of the Old Testament fellowship offering. Um, those who had experienced the grace of God were to, were to gather with others for public recital of the wonder and majesty of God's activity on behalf of His covenant people. In the context of verses 10 through 12, it is the provision of full atonement and consecration to the service of God through Jesus that motivates the praise of God. The corollary to praise and gratitude is mutual encouragement and helpfulness as an incentive and aid to Christian maturity. The combination of praise and deeds of love under the aspect of sacrifice has its source in the praise offering of the Old Covenant. So this, again, is rooted and grounded in the Old Covenant Scriptures. And there, was, there is continuity and there is discontinuity with the Old Covenant. The continuity is the, the, the acts of kindness, 
the, the bringing of the offering of praise, the sharing together in a, in a community, that a covenant community in God, that is rooted in the Old Testament. The discontinuity is in the sacrifice for sins. Whereas they had the Day of Atonement, and they had the blood of bulls and goats, and they had the high priest, and that whole sacrificial system, under the New Covenant, the sacrifice happens once for all. A phrase that you find several times in Hebrews. The sacrifice happens once for all. Christ pays for sins. His blood cleanses the sins of his people once for all. So that part of it is done away with, and Christ becomes the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. So rather than coming with an offering in order to find forgiveness of sins, we come with our sins forgiven, and we bring an offering of thankfulness for what God has done. And then he says here it pertains to one's total conduct before God. He's talking about this word here, um, uh, for God being pleased. God is pleased with these sacrifices. But anyhow, um, the thought of pleasing sacrifices does not, does not appear to have been common outside the New Testament. Here it p- pertains to one's total conduct before God and covers both personal piety and corporate responsibility. Only those who are consecrated to God and who have been made pleasing to Him can offer to Him a well-pleasing sacrifice. This is the relationship of 16b to its immediate context. On the other hand, the sacrifices of praise, acts of kindness, and generosity together constitute the worship that God desires from the new covenant community in response to the experience of saving grace. Christians must glorify God not merely with their mouths, but with their works as well. Okay, so it's a, it's a very simple thing, but yet it's very profound and very, very important. Uh, there's no way that you could claim that Christianity is something that's designed to be practiced in isolation. You know, there are some people that get so disgusted with the church or disgusted with experience they've had or disgusted with bad leadership or what have you that they determine to no longer fellowship with other Christians. I don't believe that that's a legitimate option. You know, I know there's some people that are probably mad that I'm saying this. But I, I can't find that in the New Testament. I can't find a legitimate reason other than if you are confined to solitary confinement. But I just don't see that you have your own private Christianity. Well, it also states that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that that's also a part of our test, being tested by uh, that which is false in a church. Yeah, it is part of the testing process. To know where your faith really is. Yeah. Hello, I think we need to turn that up. <laughs> okay, you got to talk loud into it, I guess. It, it depends the feedback. Okay, um, <coughs> yes, and it's absolutely true that there's problems and testings and, and, and false teachings and times that we have to make some distinctions and decisions, and it could be that we end up with just a little group in a home or we or a little persecuted church somewhere, but we still got to find out, find the remnant and gather with them. You know, whatever whatever it takes. Because I, the whole idea of fellowship, koinonia, sharing of a common life together, tells us that we really do need one another. And that if I don't have other Christians in my life that, that I'm fellowshipping with and that I'm doing this process of 
opening scriptures discussing the meaning, applying it to, to ourselves and to others, and um, that I will become a very eccentric person at the very least. And whatever idiosyncrasies I have that aren't so great are just going to get accentuated the more I keep in isolation. And the more I'm around people with other gifts and, and, and who can say things to me if they see me going off, the safer it is and the better it is. All right, so I would urge people to try to find fellowship. Um, and if you only have just a handful that can gather, that's better than having none. In uh, Revelation 2 and 3, the five out of the seven local churches have big problems. Right. And yet in every one, Jesus says, he who overcomes and then proceeds. And can we take that as a message to us that in our local church situation, we need to realize that it might not be perfect, but if we're an overcomer, we should be in that church and uh, struggling or, or praising God through it and well, uh, I think on. I think Patrick, the issue would be if ultimately the leadership is bent on um, going away from the faith, then ultimately you need to start something and find you know, legitimate elders or what have you somewhere. See, I think you can't just support something that's become an enemy to the faith because I don't know if it's a church. Now we're still always required to overcome. All right, and if we're in a situation where it's really bad, we should be an overcomer, and we should stand for the truth, and we should try to be a good influence. But ultimately, if the leadership is taking the resources of the church and misusing it and misleading it, it's time to start something else, in my opinion, like they did in the 1920s um, when the modernists took over all the seminaries. Uh, J. Gresham Macon went and started Westminster somewhere else. Said, okay, well, I'm not going to put my resources into Princeton because you've abandoned the faith. Yes, David. Um, I believe that there's a lot of exhortations in the Bible to come out of either Babylon or Egypt, which represents the world system. So many churches that we have attended while we were church shopping were very, very worldly, and um, I just felt that uh, it wasn't right, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't be there. So uh, I, I believe that there are a lot of scriptural references to get away from that. <laughs> well, <clears throat> one of the things I pointed out before was that fellowship is based on the blood atonement, right? That's If you go into 1 John 1, the blood atonement is what we have in common and why we have fellowship. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. So if you're in a group that denies that or mutes or refuses to preach on the blood atonement, there's no possibility for the kind of fellowship the Bible intends because we can't have fellowship with the world. Yes? In the same way that we are responsible for our own sin, we are also responsible for sitting under bad teaching. I, I know of a group of people that built a church and the theology there isn't really the best right now, but they refuse to leave because it's their building. They put their money and lives into the building, and they're neglecting the theology because they made that investment into the building, into the neighborhood. Yeah, okay. But we are responsible for our own discipleship also. If you can't find good teachers, you've got to go somewhere else and find it. 
Well, uh, you make a, an interesting thing to talk about, which is buildings. Buildings are just facilities. They aren't churches. Now, I know usage determines meaning, and within the range of meaning of the word church in modern English, one part of the range of meaning is building. You know, I understand how language works, but I'm talking about the Bible itself. Now, the Bible itself doesn't call, use the word church to describe a building. Now, I know we get very invested in a building, and, and it's a big deal to get a building. And uh, <laughs> I know, and uh, sometimes it'd be, we had to live in a simpler world, maybe we wouldn't need one. But we should never consider the building the thing we're committed to. We're committed to one another. Amen. And the flock is what matters. And in uh, countries where the church has come under persecution, where they weren't even allowed to have a building, the church has always flourished. God continues to raise up people and they continue to fellowship one another. But the word for the church has to do with the household. I'm going to preach on this in my sermon, by the way. I'm, uh, I'm starting Second Thessalonians 1. I'm going to talk about the church and what is the church and what isn't the church and what does the New Testament say about the church. But it's a gathering of people who are called together, called out of the world, and together in relationship with God and one another. And it's people who have a mutual uh, Savior, Jesus Christ, whose, uh, whose sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus, and who gather together for what, is, what does it say here? Let's go back to our passage. It says here, Through him then let us, now these are plural, so this is talking to the church, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So we should come together and praise God together in a biblical way. The fruit of the lips to give thanks to his name. And then it says, and to not neglect doing good. Part of uh, doing good is sharing. And sharing here means in a community. So part of our obligation is our of, of sacrifices to God that are pleasing to Him is sharing in a Christian community where we care for one another, where we pray for one another, where we help people that need help, and we encourage the discouraged, and we comfort the ones that need comfort, and we rebuke the ones that need rebuking, and there's church discipline, and all the things that we need to preserve us from all the bad things that could happen out there. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so, so neglecting that would not be a good thing. Now, I I hear from people. One person from Australia emailed me. She's probably going to hear this, but she says, "I can, there's no church anywhere around I can go to that's that's uh, teaching the truth of the Bible. Uh, why don't you create a virtual church?" And I said, well, we already have um, the audios, the videos, the Sunday school, everything I can think of that I put on the Internet for people. She goes, no, put some webcams up and have it live. And then, uh, then after the service, have it so that people can come back and talk to me or somebody else that's watching in Australia. Uh, <laughs> I guess there's no reason it couldn't be done. So if somebody wanted, had a burden for that, say, all right, if you want to meet some people, you click on the computer and say, hi, how's things? What do you need prayer for in Australia? <laughs> Anyhow, so that was your idea. I guess it's amazing the technology is there to do it, and it doesn't even cost a lot of money. So, <laughs> Virtual church. Well, let's look up some verses. Who's, you're over here with it. Um, 
Here, I'm going to bring it up and we'll start in our normal spot here. Actually, we could branch out a little bit. Yeah, why don't we go to the second row now that we got... Craig, you want to read a verse? Um, Genesis 4, 3 and 4. And then Mark, you have... Uh, and I may run out of names here, but okay. <laughs> two for two so far. Mark, you have Micah 6, 7 and 8. Paul, Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Amy, uh, Luke 6, 35 and 36. Jenny? Jackie. Jackie. Um, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We'll stop with that. I have a few more here. I think we should look at that Romans 12. It's very much a, a cross-reference to this, I think. So Genesis 4, 3 and 4. Now we're talking about sacrifices that God's pleased with. All right? So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Okay, so the first mention in the Bible of an offering that God was pleased with was Abel's. All right, so that's why that's a cross-reference. Now, we've, I preached through Genesis. Well, I'm not quite done with it. I, I got one more sermon in Genesis. But when I, way back when I was preaching on Cain and Abel narrative, explored a little bit this whole idea of Abel's offering and why it was, God was pleased with it. I, let's start with a real baseline understanding. God has the right to decide what he's pleased with. Let me say that again. Does, does God not have the right to determine what offering he's going to be pleased with? See, Cain, Cain wouldn't even grant to God the right to determine the offering. Cain was going to do what he wanted, and if God didn't like it, he's mad. He's going to kill his brother, and he's mad. You can't tell me. It's not fair. Well, God doesn't have to live up the human ideas of what fair or fair isn't. So, number one, God gets to determine the offering because he's God. Number two, the offering uh, that God did accept from Cain was an animal, right? And so it would possibly, now not all the scholars believe that that's a, uh, an implication of Genesis, but would indicate that it's going to be a blood sacrifice for sins. Now, there were grain offerings in the Old Testament, but we'd have to say that the priority would be the blood because that's where there's remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so those... The blood offering is even more important, and it has to be the primary one. Without the blood offering, all the grain offerings would go for naught, right? Because the blood is on the Day of Atonement. So that's another reason. But I think there's yet even one more uh, prominent reason why God had uh, regard for Abel's offering, and it's revealed in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, where we've already studied. What does it say about his offering in Hebrews 11? By faith. And there we really get down to the heart of the issue. According to Hebrews, the reason God accepted Abel's offering is because it was offered in faith. So we have God determining, we have a blood sacrifice prefigured, and we have an offering that's brought in faith. Now, Cain was given an opportunity to repent, was he not? Remember God says sin is crouching at the door and it's desires for you? Now, there's, there's no reason why Cain couldn't have got an offering from Abel and brought it in faith and done whatever God asked him to do. Cain could have said, okay, God, what do you want me to do? 
But instead, he decided he was going to be the master of his own religion. <laughs> so, the offering that God's pleased with is an offering that God determines, and it's one that's brought in faith. So even these ones that it says here that he's pleased with, the fruit of the lips, doing good and sharing, has to be done in faith if it's going to be pleasing to God. It isn't done in the religion of good works, thinking we're earning merit. Okay, the next passage is interesting in, in Micah 6, 7, and 8. Okay, Mark? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Wow. That's an interesting passage. So the, 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 the writer is saying, what, what could I give? It's, none of, nothing's going to be good enough. And it says, he's shown the old man what is good. And it talks about this uh, justice, walking in humility. And so there's a hard attitude that, that's very much involved with the offering that God's pleased with. So it looks, even in the Old Covenant, they were looking to the heart. Yes, uh, Steve, go past the... Could you give Steve the mic? Sometimes uh, you don't feel like uh, praising all the time. And I'm just asking the question, what about just praising because of our out of obedience? Uh, you know, bringing, you know, bringing the, um, the attitude of, of worship just because we're commanded to praise and, and worship. Um, and then the emotions sometimes come later. I'm just wondering, where does the heart connection with that okay. uh, come in there? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, well, according to the Bible, the, the key thing is to come in faith, and, and obedience is an expression of faith. Okay, because it says in Romans that Paul's ministry is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. So if you believe that God is who he says he is, and you believe that a way to a, a sacrifice that would be pleasing to God is to bring the fruit of your lips to give thanks to his name, that coming and doing so in faith and obedience would be pleasing to God regardless of what you might feel like at the moment, in my opinion. I, I don't, feelings really aren't that determinative of anything. So all, all the more uh, important that for us to continue to, uh, <laughs> c- continue to give uh, worship and praise uh, when, even when we don't feel Yes, like and the same thing with the rest of this. Not neglecting doing good and not neglecting the sharing together. Um, you know, a trick of Satan, in my opinion, a trick of Satan is this, saying, saying to people, you're not getting anything out of this anyhow, and these people, you know, they're not interested in you, or you're not going to ever make any friends, or this is, you know, whatever these things are, and just look at you, you don't have anything to offer. And so people get pushed. They just decide, why should I even go to church? Why should I even gather with other believers? Why should I give thanks to God? Why should I share with others? Because it's not going to do any good anyhow. But again, it's a trick to isolate you. Have you ever seen a, um, you ever seen a, one of these documentaries of wild, uh, wildlife in Africa when, when they, they'll show a lion attacking a herd of Whatever they may be, these gazelles or whatever that run real fast. Do you ever notice what happens? They always the lion always picks off the straggler. 
you know, the one that the one that's kind of isolated and, and, and not doing so good. And putting yourself out there to be a straggler is asking for trouble. I'm not saying God won't preserve all of His people, but if we neglect the means of grace, we're creating a straggler situation, and the roaring lion knows who to attack. So we got to get in to the fellowship and open our mouths and praise the Lord and care for one another and pray for one another and open our Bibles and read it together and and um, uh, exhort one another unto love and good works and so on. As all this that we've been studying, Hebrews is all about that. Back to Steve there. <laughs> Just the verse comes to mind. Um, don't know the reference, but uh, o- o- obedience is better than sacrifice. And wouldn't that apply in this case? Yes, that's mentioned a couple times. Uh, I think it's in 1 Samuel 15. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so come in obedience and God will use it. Good reminder for the church to uh, worship, praise, even though you don't feel like it. I agree. Okay, Denise and then Paul. He's the um, is there a difference or are they the same, faith and belief? Or what's the difference between the two? Well, the, well faith and belief is, is more grammatical. Uh, in Greek, you'd know that they were the same. Okay? Because there's a, peculiar, a peculiarity about the English language that the word faith and the word belief don't sound the same. But in the Greek, it's um, pistis and pistuo. And so you have a noun or a verb. But really, in the, in the Bible, it's all it's rooted in the same exact word. So faith would be have something one has, a state of being in faith. And to believe would be a, a verb, something you do, but they're, in, you know, they're intertwined. Okay. okay, go ahead now, Paul. <laughs> um, in the 51st Psalm, it, okay. David says in verse 15 through 19, O Lord, open my lips... And my mouth will declare your praise, for you will, not, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in a right sacrifice, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will, off, will be offered on your altar. And just how the the... Faith there comes first, the praise, yeah. and then the, the, the sacrifice. The covenantal sacrifice. Well, that's very similar to the one in Micah where uh, the Mark read, where, what can I give? Dave said, I, uh, David, I, there's nothing I can give. But he did come in faith and humility. Yes, Patrick. I think of Jews today, and I don't think of a group of people who spend a lot of time worshiping like Christians do. They don't sit around and praise God a lot. Uh, is that true, or was that true then? Uh, was there a lack of, of okay, dedicated uh, worship? You're asking or? about in Judaism? Yeah. Yeah, well, from my research, um, I read a book about the history of the Jews, a very interesting book. The festive praise part had to do with the temple and the pilgrims. So the, the, these psalms of praise and all the, the, the high, glorious things that was v- verbal expressions happened at these pilgrim feasts. And it was all centered about the temple. And according to my research, what happened when the temple's destroyed and you have the diaspora, um, they, they could no longer have that part. It was just was lacking. So the synagogue is based on study. 
And what they did was to be disciples of Moses, they emphasized very much study and learning. And so Israel, when it became a diaspora, the main thing they would do continually is study. Study Torah, study Torah, study Torah, discuss Torah, educate your children in Torah. Not that there's no music, but, but, the, but that part was, in a sense, torn away from them when they lost the temple and that whole part of what they used to do. Um, and so if you read a book, what was the book I read? I have a book about this thick on the history of the Jews. And he talks about how Judaism became a, a very much intellectual religion. Yes. Well, the, the praise they had, again, was based on the hope of a Messiah. And, and somehow when the temple was destroyed, the lament is kind of what's left. And, and the lament was certainly a Jewish um, uh, contribution to the world's literature. <laughs> Would this concept be foreign to the readers of, of Hebrews more than it is to us, perhaps? Well, good point, Patrick. Uh, in Hebrews, really, that's how it came up because they were they were tempted to go back to this system because, assuming the temple was still standing, as it seems to be in the, in Hebrews, they could have gone back to the joyous procession on, on the Day of Atonement. They could have gone back to the joyous procession for tabernacles. They could have gone back to all of that, and it was still going, and because that was their sacrifices. But here it says. Now, as Christians, those sacrifices God's not pleased with. He's sac- this is your sacrifice. So you gather together as Christians in groups, and you fellowship with one another, and you do good to one another, and you, and you praise God together, and that's your sacrifice. So that became a bigger part of Christianity, uh, but, uh, rather than the whole temple thing. Yes. Yeah, I'm just going to get back to Psalm 51. Um, you know, the sacrifice of the spirit of a broken and contrite heart. I don't think, in my, my opinion, that you could get any more than that to God. Because what happens here is that when you're, you're walking through the field and you're, you're able, and you're able to give the, your, your first fruits, right? Yeah. You're happy and it's all, everything's all good. But when you're, something devastating can happen and say to the Jews uh, that what's going on now is that, um, you know, in that in that devastation which is happening, the war and everything, is that their spirit might have to be so broken that that they'd have to come and plead to God. I think that's a little more of what it's like. Is this lament about all the sorrows? Um, and this this the, the isn't the this uh, feast they just or not feast this event they just had here in early August. Commemorated all the pogroms that all ironically happened on August 3rd. Uh, Jan sent out an email about that, explaining all the things that had happened on August 3rd in their history. And so there's just a whole culture of lament, understandably so, because they've been hated and persecuted th- throughout their history. Okay, let's go back to the verse. Uh, Paul, you had um, Matthew 25, 35 to 40. I think that's about doing good. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see the hungry and feed you? 
or when did we are thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a straight, you a stranger and welcome you or a naked and clothe you? And when did you see a sick person and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brother of these my brothers, you did to me. And you did this to the least of my brothers. So doing any simple act of love and kindness to the least of these is done unto the Lord and will be rewarded. The things that are very profound are usually very simple. <laughs> and not uh, we like the splashy which I, you know, I, I can't remember if I talked about this last week. But especially in America, we like big. We like splashy. We like something just huge. So if, if a charity wants to get money, they, they have they get, they, a big deal. We're going we're gonna to fill the Metrodome, and we're going to, we're gonna raise $10 million. And, we're going to, and so rather than the kind of thing that Paul just read about, what we like to do is create organizations and get money. You know, millions and millions and millions and then hire all these people to run the infrastructure and then we're going to have a big splashy good deed. We're going to cure AIDS in Africa or whatever. Splashy, big, wonderful, all of this stuff. But is that what we just read about? No. It didn't say uh, you went and created a 501c3 and collected $20 million and sent it to Africa. That's not what it says. It says, you did this to the least of these, my brethren. You, you visited me. You, you, you brought water, whatever it was that we need. And so you can do acts of Christian kindness without having to be a genius at running some huge corporation. Okay? Now, I'm not here saying that nobody is allowed to have a corporation and to, to alleviate problems. I'm just saying that's not particularly the focus, is it? Because the things that we do... In a, in a fellowship, caring for one another are more profound in Jesus' eyes than uh, having one of these huge infrastructures created. And one thing that parallels that is the act of kindness, however insignificant, done unto the Lord. The reward for that is an eternal reward. Yes, it is. It may look insignificant, but it isn't to the Lord. So, okay, now we had another passage in Amy. Is that you? Um, Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Okay, there it expands it. It says to do good to your enemies. That's, That's even harder. That's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah, if you if you want if you're starting if you're starting to feel like you're a really great Christian, uh, read Luke six thirty five. <laughs> and then, every time I read that, I think I'm not such a great Christian. I don't my enemies. I <laughs> it's a it's a tough one, but it, there it is. Yes, Paul. I think it's uh, interesting. Like secular charities, one of the great motivators is it feels good. I yeah. listen to ad on the radio yesterday, you know. It's like, and help people and all this. And it'll make you feel good, you know. It's like, so even even charitable deeds done in the flesh are for a corrupt motive and they'll, they'll be burned up. Yeah, good point. Like wood, hay, and stubble. So. Okay, and then uh, Jackie, uh, you had 
Romans 12, 1 and 2. Very important passage. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay. So that was Romans 12, 1 and 2. Again, the reason that's a significant cross-reference is it's talking about something that's acceptable to God. What kind of a sacrifice is acceptable to God? Well, here it says, present your bodies to Him as a living sacrifice and your mind to be proving, okay, putting to the test what is the acceptable will of God. What has God said? So presenting your... I think you see the same idea, the... um, Presenting ourselves as servants of God to do good and together delving into the implications of the faith once for all delivered to the saints that we might know what the will of God is. The will of God is discovered through the exposition and the exhortation coming from Scripture. If you look at Romans 12.2, which, by the way, is a verse that's abused in the purpose-driven life, uh, misused, mistranslated, and everything else you could do wrong with it. But Romans 12.2 is about objective test. If you look, look it up in the Greek. And it isn't about fishing around to find your purpose uh, by experimenting uh, like uh, Forrest Gump or something. It's about proving what the will of God is objectively by delving into the truth that's been revealed so we understand what God has said and how it applies to us. That's how you determine God's will and purpose, not by self-discovery. Okay, um, I had some more. Help me with your name. Julie? Julie. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 12 and 13 and, and Jen, um, Galatians 6.10. And Bob, do you want to do 3 John 1.11? Yeah, 2 Corinthians uh, 9, 12, and 13. For the service... That the ministering for the service that the ministering of this fund renders does not only fully supply what is lacking to the saints, God's people, but it also overflows in many cries of thanksgiving to God. Because at your standing of the test of this ministry, they will glorify God for your loyalty and obedience to the gospel of Christ, which you confess, as well as for your generous, generous-hearted liberality to them and to all the other needy ones. Yes, and in that case, Paul's talking, again, talking about um, this is a gospel issue, and as the churches in Asia Minor were taking up an offering for the relief of the church in uh, Judea that was going through some sort of a famine or poverty, he said that that was a gospel issue and that this was something that was well-pleasing to God, that they would give for other Christians to help them. Okay, and then Jim, uh, Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Okay, do good to all people as we have opportunity. If you want to hand it up here to Bob. 
3 John 11. Dear friend, don't let this bad example influence you. Follow only what is good. Remember that those who do good prove that they are God's children, and those who do evil prove that they do not know God. All right? So lives are changed by God. That's a, that verse you just read, did anybody else read these, uh, go on this Christian Worldview Network and read the different essays? Um, did anybody see Todd Friel's? Oh, boy, he, was, he got some of those no-lordship people mad. Todd Friel wrote an essay on there about, El, about an El, some kind of an Elvis Christian. What was it? Carl, yeah, the carnal Christian idea. All right, that verse you just read would would not would give uh, support to Todd Friel's position. Um, what Todd was doing, you might, if you go on our, the link on our site to Christian Worldview Network, it brings you into my essays. Then there's a list of other contributors, and you can find Todd Friel, and you can read his one about the title has Elvis in it. And uh, it was a really good little essay about the so-called carnal Christian. And what uh, Todd Friel was claiming is that these carnal Christians are actually people who are, have false assurance that were never converted. And he was talking about how he debated with Louis Palau about this last uh, year ago. And uh, Palau was just uh, rejecting the idea of quote-unquote lordship salvation. And if they come forward, and then they're saved. So then Todd Friel says 90% of those saved people never serve God. They go on in the same life they've always had before uh, they supposedly became a Christian. And he says, I don't believe that's being converted. This just saying a little prayer, signing a card, and then going on with nothing changed. And now, Bob, do you still have that verse? Read it again. Dear, Dear friend, don't let this bad example influence you. Follow only what is good. Remember that those who do good prove that they are God's children. And those who do evil prove that they do not know God. Okay, now it doesn't say that those that do good make themselves God's children. It says that those that do good prove that they are God's children. In other words, it's evidence. The changed life is evidence of a prior work of grace. But if, the, if, 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 if you're living the same life of evil that you always lived, only you just said, okay, now I believe in Jesus, you're proving that you, what? You don't know God. And that's what Todd Friel Wrote, and then you, if you read the responses, oh, some of these people get so mad about that. Yes. The way I would look at it is there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And if they're feeding from the wrong tree, rotten fruit comes from rotten roots. Okay. And good fruit comes from good roots. Right. So uh, there's an interpretive issue that somebody, one of the rebuttals to uh, Todd Friel See, what you, and the, the way the Christian Worldview Network works is people write essays, the different contributors, I'm one of them, and then you can comment, and then people fight with each other after the fact. Okay? And they go back and forth. No, yeah, I agree with Todd Friel. No, it's Todd Friel's teaching works salvation. And so that's what, that was what was going on. But uh, the whole thing was based on a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 3. That's where people find support for their carnal Christian doctrine. But what they don't know, they, they should read Gordon Fee's commentary in 1 Corinthians because he really explains it. That Paul is actually using irony to rebuke the Corinthians, not to create this third category. All right? Uh, okay, go ahead. I had an opportunity several years ago to work for the Billy Graham Association. And the, if I recall... If, if I recall... Point it right at your mouth. 
I had an opportunity not too long ago to work for the Billy Graham Association. And Louder. If I, if I recall the statistics accurately, of all the people that come forward during a crusade, 15% are actively involved, actively involved in a church one year later. Yes, 15%. Todd said 10%. Back there. We're doing this because nobody can hear whatever anybody else is saying with these fans going in the summer here. I think it's interesting because a lot of times we do a disservice to ourselves because we, we know that Jesus is the answer, but a lot of times we don't even understand the question. And being Gentiles, we often glaze over the sacrifices. We know that Jesus fulfilled them, but we don't totally understand them. And like two, you know, only two of the offerings that God outlines in Leviticus were uh, voluntary, and they were the, the sin offering and the guilt offering. And a lot of times we focus on that and just lump them all together. Um, whereas the majority of the offerings, the three out of the five that he outlines, were voluntary gift um, offerings of praise and thanksgiving. You mean and obligatory? The, 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 yeah. the sin was obligatory, yeah. Yeah, and. That was on a day in, of atonement. In right? Hebrews, you know, Paul is, or uh, the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was is exhorting the, the Messianic Hebrews to go on past those obligatory um, offerings that were fulfilled by Christ and go on to those voluntary acts of, uh, or offerings of praise and thanksgiving. <laughs> and a lot of times we don't, these are great examples of how Christ fulfilled them and what our, what our offerings look like in Christ. Um, but a lot of times we just focus so much on the, the, the work of his atoning um, sacrifice on the cross, and we never get past that. And I think that's what things like Luis Palau, and, you know, they want to get the message out there of salvation, but they, nobody ever teaches and moves on past that and what a, what a life in Christ looks like. Yeah, and, you know, I think, I'm not judging motives, but yeah, people want to give people assurance of salvation. So the preacher or the evangelist or whoever it is would like people to have assurance of salvation. It's a good thing to have assurance of salvation, unless you're not saved. Are you, okay? That assurance of salvation for somebody who isn't saved is actually a bad thing. Why? Why is it would be bad? Yeah, because it would keep you from coming truly to conversion. You think everything's okay the way it is. So... They're, they're, maybe they're saying, okay, you know, well, if we just grant assurance based on you signed a card and, and dropped it, <laughs> we were doing that on the radio. I was, um, um, Brian Flynn was interviewing me uh, about my book, and I was mentioning this thing where they sign a card and drop it in the slot. And so Todd or, or, or uh, Brian says, well, what happens then after it goes in the slot? Does God take it out or something? And <laughs> you send the cards to God, and so he knows who's saved. Yeah. Well, I, I just had this happen with my older brother. The day before Easter, we were at Grace Church, and they had 1,500 people there, and they basically had a, you know, those that you know were going to give their their lives to the Lord for the first time. They were to stay standing and whatever, and, and my brother did. And I thought, well, great. But then sometime after that, I started to really question him on what he really did, and that wasn't what he really did at all. He was just getting up. I think to get the free book or something. I don't know. But, you know, I'm saying, in other words, you, you might think that or yeah. assume somebody is doing something. Right. Out but, of faith. Yeah, because you're, 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 whether you've been praying for that person sure. or you really want that to happen, and all of a sudden 
you're, you're seeing something that gives you, you know, at least some evidence that maybe this is happening, but on further, you know, examination, there's it didn't no, happen. Yeah, there's no conversion. And, and part of why I saw that is because I was seeing that his heart hadn't changed. Right. When God changes you, he changes you from the inside out. And they don't have to drag you. Um, when I was converted, well, because it was very dramatic because I was such an enemy of the gospel. But when I was converted, I was it's just like in, you can read it in Acts 2, actually. If somebody's converted, they will ask what to do. You know, you don't have to give them a little packet. You know, how to be a good Christian. They, they were saying, what should we do? They were pierced to the heart. What should we do? What should we do? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and you should receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that was like with me. What, what do I got to do? And they said, well, you should testify. You need to testify if you're really a Christian. All right, where and when? So a day after I was saved, they put me up in front of 300 junior high kids at a camp. No, that probably wasn't a good idea. But it turned out that the Lord used it because all I, I said, I don't know what a testimony is, but I'm willing to do it. And they said, well, that's because I came from a liberal church. We had no testimony. And they said, just tell what God did. And I got up and told the whole dramatic story of my conversion as like a one-day-old Christian. And it was very profound. There were all these kids running and crying and, oh, God, help me. But uh, it was inter- it was an interesting experience. But my point is this: because these people, because I met the Lord, once I knew that there was something that would be pleasing to the Lord, I wanted to figure out if I could do it by God's grace. But that's what it's like when you're converted. But when you're not converted and you sign a little card, then you're saying, okay, what what do I got to do? You know, what are, what do these Christians expect of me? And it's very distasteful. Because there's, the heart really still isn't converted. Uh, did you have something, or did you just end up with a yeah, mic? Just, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, just on a personal note, and from what she so eloquently stated, when it, when I was taught how to share my faith, like just say the prayer and ask Jesus in your heart, that's what made me doubt my salvation because I had never done it that way. That's not how I came to the Lord. But you know, I had a true repentance, sorrow to God ask him to forgive me and then I witnessed to somebody that way thankfully I said the whole thing but then had them repeat the prayer well I knew instantly he wasn't saved (laughs) so I think that damages even the believers more so so you think my early yeah it's it's definitely important to follow the biblical pattern now now Todd Friel's with the way of the master ministry with great comfort and so that's their big thing that they do there's a I see that hand. Isn't that how you do it? <laughs> Anyhow, they, uh... <laughs> but anyhow, uh, if you get a chance, find that thing with Todd Friel about with the Elvis in the title and read it. And then when we come back next Sunday, uh, maybe some people want to discuss your take on his, his uh, article about carnal Christians. Yes? Oh, I was just going to make a comment. I think last year when um, Todd Friel was talking about Speaking with Luis Palau, that the counselors at that um, festival were said they were told not to mention sin, repentance, hell, or judgment. If someone was coming for the first time, they could only, if they were coming for reassurance, mention that. Really? They were told that. And then also, I know the Alpha program at one of the churches I was at, we had a girl in the group that said, well, I'm really not sure I'm saved. And then the leader 
gave her all these verses on assurance. And I was so upset because I was co-leading. I said, why did you give her verses on assurance when she just said she's not sure if she was saved? She goes, well, she said that prayer when she was five. So I was okay. like, I cannot believe you sent her away. And yeah. <laughs> so, so they were actually, the, the counselors at this big evangelistic event were not supposed to talk about repentance and sin. Unbelievable. Well, you know, uh, it's like saying we don't want the Holy Spirit to be working. What is it? In fact, Todd mentions that in his little article, by the way. What did Jesus say the Holy Spirit would do? Convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so, uh, how can you have an evangelistic event and say we don't need that kind of thing? It's really bad. Okay, uh, Ryan, do you have, Ryan wrote a book on assurance. You want to comment on false assurance? Okay. Uh, read the book, no. <laughs> <laughs> Buy his book. <laughs> <laughs> Buy the book, yeah. Um, <laughs> Anchor of assurance. This is a little big, uh, Yeah, it's a big question. and it, One of the things I was thinking about when Kat was talking here is that false assurance is it's a plague that is all over the place because for a couple reasons. The main reason is the, the scriptures aren't taught anywhere. And they're not, and, and the true gospel is not being proclaimed and one of the big problems is this, is this, I think, is this decision theology that I, I hear talk, you guys talking about. Is, and that doesn't mean that people haven't come to the Lord in, this, you know, in you know, altar calls and stuff like that. The Lord can work in spite of such things. But the problem is, is what I see is this make a decision for Jesus and just kind of this one time, you know, make this mental ascent and then you're, you're in is it places the focus on man. You just make this decision and you're going to get in. Instead of the work of God, which is the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus Christ coming to atone for our sin. And then when the gospel is preached in in its essence, meaning uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ is proclaimed with the necessary elements of repentance. And repentance is necessary we read that in Hebrews that this is an elementary thing. Let's yes. go past the elementary thing, point. which is repentance from dead works. Wow. So that when those things are there and the gospel is preached and people come to repentance and faith in Christ, then that's the starting point for assurance. And when that starts, if we look at Hebrews, which we're in Hebrews, right? Yeah, we're, we got, we're just about done. <laughs> What's amazing about Hebrews is Hebrews has these warnings, which we've been through, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, and they're fearful, and they should be, because uh, it's, it's powerful. We, we must continue in the faith. But the assuring thing is, is if you have truly come to repentance and faith in the true gospel, you have the great high priest, which is where the author of Hebrews roots his assurance that we have the great high priest and you cannot understand the high priestly ministry of Jesus apart from the cross because by one offering he has perfected forever those who come to God through him amen so we always are looking towards the one who endured the cross but since he's a, he's our eternal high priest he is forever saving us from God's wrath because his life is our life 
And that is where true assurance lies. Yeah, the anchor inside yeah, the veil. And that is. That, again, speaking of the high priestly ministry, that's why it's called the anchor of assurance. Jesus has entered into the veil, and it's an anchor going into the presence of God. It's, a, it's an inverted anchor because it's up in heaven. We're tied to it, right? We're anchored to heaven. We're anchored to heaven. Why? Because we are united with Christ, who's our great high priest, who has gone into the veil and secured right. us forever. That's right. where assurance lies. Right, so assurance is found in that, not in my, not in my decision. prayer, yep. my signing a card, or I decided exactly. I'd like to be a Christian. And I think that's what Kat was talking yeah. about. Yeah. Is that yeah. stuff, yeah. It, I really couldn't come to true assurance until I realized that salvation is the work of God. Amen. Beginning, continuing, and in the future. If you're looking at yourself, and that's, that was a problem, I knew I could screw it up. <laughs> and it was up to me, which is why I'm thankful that Christ is the one who keeps me. I'm okay, not thanks, Ryan. So, yeah, there's a little booklet we published called Anchor of Assurance that Ryan wrote. Okay, we, uh, we're out of time. Thanks for the, uh, a lively discussion, and maybe some of you want to go read that Todd Friel article if you've got Internet access. This morning, we'll meet upstairs at 1030. We'll see you then. <laughs>